All right. Well, we'll go ahead and get started in just a second. We may still get a couple more. Uh, so we're going to be in chapter two this week. Uh, I don't have a handout, but I will have uh, some slides that we can go through. And you know, just let me know if you prefer having a handout or if you are happy with just having slides, what, what works best. Uh, I know handouts are a little harder to get to people uh, since I can't hand them out, as the name implies. Uh, but you know, I know there's a lot, especially as we get in into the uh, thick of it with Revelation, there's a lot that it's hard to keep track of. So uh, I'll, I'll pay attention to that as we get further in. Um, so it's been a couple weeks. We were off last week. Um, so just as a reminder, so, uh, last time in chapter one, we had uh, kind of this introduction. Uh, John has this vision of Christ. Here's one depiction of it. Uh, you know, it's one of the things we talked about when you start trying to draw some of these things. They, they look a little silly, right? The, the sword coming out of his mouth. Um, but again, we, we talked there about what is this trying to represent? So, you know, just, just as we're starting, uh, if you were going to pick one word that describes Jesus in this vision, right, uh, what, what one word would you use? Flaming eyes, sword in the mouth, white glowing hair, stars in his hand. What word would you use? Magnificent. Uh, yeah. All-powerful. Powerful, all-powerful, yeah, almighty. What else? Is this how you usually think of Jesus? No. Kind of scary, maybe. Uh, intense. Might say holy. That's a word that we often think of as a little surprising. Might make us take a step back or want to cover ourselves as John is in this picture. Uh, but again, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, the idea is he is the Lord, right? And, and it's emphasizing he's in control. He has power. And when you feel powerless, that is a hopeful message. And that's what we're going to see come out as we get into chapter two here. So this week and next week, we're going to look at the messages to seven different churches in chapters two and three. Hopefully we can get through all chapter two today. And uh, it's a helpful reminder of us as we start that, again, Revelation is, it's a letter, right? It's, it's two specific churches in specific places at a specific time. Uh, it was written to them, even if it is also for us. But we can't skip over that way in which it was to them if we're going to figure out what it means for us. I think a lot of the um, uh, problematic interpretations of Revelation skip over the fact that it was written to a specific group of churches. Uh, and these churches are in, at that point, what's called Asia or Asia Minor. Today, we uh, would, it's modern-day Turkey. And some of these cities are still cities there. Um, and you can go visit and see some of the ruins. Anna Jane has actually been to Pergamum. I don't know if she's been to any others on one of her trips abroad. Uh, and along with that idea that it was to specific Christians at this time, um, one interpretation of these letters that I hadn't even heard before until I started doing some research, uh, there are some that would say that uh, these represent the seven historical ages of the church somehow, right? The idea that like Ephesus was the early church, Smyrna is the persecuted church, Pergamum is the imperial church. Uh, there's no basis in Revelation to read it that way, right? It was to these specific churches. 
that approach tends to say that American fundamentalists are the final church and we're the good one and Jesus is about to come back, right? Those interpretations end up always being very self-centered. Uh, and ironically, it's taken one of the actual literal parts of Revelation uh, that these were literal churches and interpreting that in a weird symbolic way. So I bring that up just to say I don't agree with that interpretation in case you've ever heard it. But at the same time, as we read through what Jesus says to all these different churches, uh, we can uh, watch out for the same problems. We can kind of think of them as like types of churches. And uh, really the question, we'll get to this more next week, but I want us to be thinking at, about it as we go through all of these, is which church are we most like? Right? If Jesus came in a vision to Westlink, what would he say to us? Uh, would he echo some of the things that he said to them? Or would he have something else to say? As we look at the messages, they all have the same pattern. Uh, they start with Christ, a description of, of him, uh, a commendation, right? He says something encouraging, a condemnation. He says, here's something that uh, I have against you or something you need to work on. And he gives a challenge. Here's what you need to do, right? Usually related to that condemnation. But then finally, a word of comfort, right? And here's how you can conquer or have victory. So that's, that's usually what you see in all of them. Most will have all five of those things. Uh, so that's, that's the pattern. Um, really the kind of the question of, are they suffering under the Roman empire or are they getting a little too cozy with the empire? Uh, because there's benefits, right? When you just kind of go along. Sometimes it's hard to see. You may think that you're following Jesus, but you're actually giving a little bit too much attention or allegiance to other powers. And so this is trying to call that out a little bit. And there's I'm internal sorry, pressure, right? In the church, that, there might be some problems or uh, disagreements or arguments. Um, and then there may be external pressures, right? Coming from the Roman Empire or from, from elsewhere. And so Jesus is going to speak to both of them. Um, the descriptions of Christ that we'll see here, they come from that initial appearance um, from chapter one, it's just going to echo that. And then that the comfort or the promises, those all come from chapters 21 and 22, the end of the letter, kind of what is being promised. Uh, that's that's uh, foreshadowing for what uh, the end of the book looks at. All right. So that's the introduction to, to the letters. Let's get to the first one, which is Ephesus. So chapter two, one to uh, seven. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. I know that you cannot tolerate evildoers. You have tested those who claim to be apostles, but are not, and found them to be false. I also know that you are enduring patiently and bearing up for the sake of my name, that you have not grown weary. But... I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember then from what you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this is to your credit. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. But anyone who has an ear, listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. To everyone who conquers, I will give permission to eat from the tree of life that is in the paradise of God. All right, so Ephesus, um, this is a, a major city, a Roman capital in Asia. Uh, you had the temple of Artemis in Ephesus. So on the left, you can see how it is now and what we think it looked like 
back in the, the first century. Uh, if you know the book of Acts, chapter 19 is where the, the church is established in, in Ephesus. And actually, the, the big the riot that happens is because they think that they're detracting from the worship of Artemis in this temple, right? So you can see worship of this pagan goddess was, was a very big deal in this city. So what first thing Jesus talks about to Ephesus is about how they've forgotten their first love. And actually, uh, Gary talked a little bit about this this morning, right? How, how you can see when somebody is in love, right? Think about when you first fell in love with somebody, um, whether that's romantic or just otherwise, right? Starting over some sort of relationship. At the beginning, very exciting, a lot of passion. You want to tell everybody about it, even if they don't want to hear it. <laughs> very public in your displays of affection and those sort of things. Um, is that kind of passion sustainable? What do you think? Uh, what happens if you try and build a relationship just on that kind of initial sort of love? You'll have to unmute yourselves, but uh, share what you think about that first beginning sort of love. Well, I think it's probably those early days. It's, it's easier to just love freely because there's generally there's less responsibility surrounding surrounding it mm. and it's just fun and new and um then yeah as the years progress the love just looks different it just it involves um listening to people talk about things you don't really care about but you do anyway because you love them i mean i'm not there, yeah. personal experience everything you say is riveting of course <laughs> yeah. but for everyone else Right. What I'm right. saying. <laughs> For everyone else, Anna Jane has been very surprised about my recent interest in football. So that's <laughs> what referring to. But go he's, let's just say he's not the man I married. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Okay. All right. Well, moving on from that. Uh, right. We all know this probably that love does grow and develop over time. That, that kind of passionate, fiery love often turns into like a more. Uh, smoldering, uh, deeper burning love, right? Just like when you build a fire, uh, it's not gonna have those flashing flames the whole time, but actually it's hottest when it's those, those coals. And so that's, I think that's kind of what happens with love. And I think that's what happens with faith. I think that could be uh, a way to think about what's going on here, right? Our faith in the same way, when, when you first become a Christian, uh, it is very much like first falling in love. And over time, you may not have that same sort of passion but that doesn't mean that your faith is weakening, right? It actually can grow as you face more challenges. Um, and, and that's actually a stronger faith to get past some of those initial uh, sort of feelings. Um, and that's hopefully what we want, but it seems like somehow they've, they've lost something from the beginning, right? So what we want is to be able to grow, to change, but in a way that helps us grow, not just to change and, and lose some things here. Um, it's actually not clear when he says your first love, it could be their love for Christ. It could be their love for one another. Right? As we've emphasized through the sermons this year, those two have to go together. Um, and so if we, if your love for Christ in the beginning caused you to want to serve and help others, but then you kind of lose that over time. Um, I think Jesus, what Jesus says here could speak to that as well, or somehow our faith in, in Jesus himself can diminish and that's something we have to watch out for uh so then he also talks about uh this additional problem of um 
the false apostles and the Nicolaitans. Um, now, the word apostle, we tend to associate just with the 12, uh, but it can also just, it's basically the word for someone who's sent. And so it's a word that we see in a few places in the New Testament refer to basically like missionaries. Um, you can use the term apostle there. And so there are some that apparently were not uh, being sent out with the right sort of message, but they're, they're recognizing that. He also mentioned these Nicolaitans. We don't really know much about who they are, if this was a really specific sect, you know, that was behind a specific leader, or if this is just uh, kind of a general term that is being used in Revelation that those people wouldn't have used for themselves. Uh, that, that word literally means conqueror of the people, um, which Jesus calls them to be, you know, true conquerors. So maybe that's what's going on. It could be a leader named Nicholas. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit more about this later as we talk about, as we see what he says about Balaam and Jezebel. I think it's all sort of the same problem. So we'll get to that in just a little bit. What he emphasizes, though, is that they need to have patient endurance. And that's a theme that will come up in several of these messages. And what that looks like, I think, kind of depends on context, right? If you're going through persecution, uh, then it's, okay, we got we to gotta bear up under this, not give up. Um, but if you're in a place of relative comfort, which is probably us more and, and really some of them at the same time as well, it's don't just give in and go along with the flow, um, but see how, right, pa patient endurance is not just this passive thing of just, just kind of hang out and wait until Jesus comes. It's, you know, keep doing the things that you're called to do. Keep serving. That, that is part of this patient endurance here. Uh, it's standing up as a faithful witness. Uh, for Christ, like Christ. Right? We mentioned before, and we'll see this especially in the next part, of what it means to really be a witness. So next, let's get to uh, the letter, the message to Smyrna. Uh, this is in verses 8 to 11. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, these are the words of the first and the last who was dead and came to life. I know your affliction and your poverty, even though you are rich. I know the slander on the part of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what they, you are about to suffer. Beware, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison so that you may be tested, and for ten days you'll have affliction. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Let anyone who has an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Whoever conquers will not be harmed by the second death. Uh, so Smyrna was... Um, a harbor city. It was uh, north of Ephesus, a center of emperor worship, right? So that's, that's an, you know, worshiping the Roman emperor was an important part. It was kind of seen as, as a civic duty, and so when Christians wouldn't do that, it wasn't just that they weren't, you know, be, being a part of our religion. It was, you're hurting the empire here by not doing this, um, and so that's obviously seems to be causing some, some difficulty for them, and what you as we mentioned in the beginning, the word apocalypse means to reveal, right? And so what it's revealing here is that you're actually rich, even though all you see is your poverty. It's a helpful reminder for us to ask, do we see ourselves the way that God sees us? Are we just looking at some of our earthly circumstances and not seeing what God might actually be doing in those circumstances? Uh, it's, sometimes it's very easy to only see the bad stuff, to see the problems, and not see how God might still be working through that. Uh, so he talks about this problem of, um, you know, being slandered and something um, with Satan being involved in this. 
So the Hebrew word, uh, Satan is a Hebrew word that means accuser. And then uh, the word devil or diablos in Greek also kind of means slanderer, right? So that's basically the root idea behind what Satan is, uh, the, the title there. And so uh, it doesn't, I would guess that it's not that these Jewish people are worshiping Satan in their synagogue. It's that they're doing the devil's work by slandering, by accusing God's people. Right? And remember, uh, John is Jewish. That's very clear. A lot of these believers are probably also Jewish Christians. So this is like a inter-Jewish debate, not just um, attacking the, the Jews. Uh, so we always want to be careful about those kind of anti-Semitic views that, that can come in there. Um, this is one church where there's no, Jesus doesn't have any words against them, no, none of that condemnation on our list of things that we find in all of them. And so what we find is that the most faithful church is also the most persecuted. He's saying, you know, things are rough now and uh, it's maybe going to get a little worse. So why, why would that be? Why would it be that the more faithful we are, sometimes that means we're more likely to experience persecution or difficulty does that go against what we expect or should we expect that well we really should expect that because if you're the most faithful that's what the world doesn't want to hear so you should expect to get dumped on a little harder than everybody else yeah i think that's true right the more you stand up the more you're kind of making yourself a target right um if you're blending in if that's kind of your effort well nobody's going to really notice if you're just going with the flow of what uh, everyone else is doing. And so that's, unfortunately, that can, can be a reality. Um, and so we're called, if, if we know this is the right thing to do, if I need to speak up against this injustice, I'm going to do that even if it uh, might call some attention to me. And so Jesus is trying to encourage them to, to continue to do that. And when you know, right, we shouldn't be surprised that, that it's not always going to be easy for us. Um, now, again, I think we have to be careful uh, to not have this persecution complex um, because we are living in a very different time than they did. But still, when we when we speak up for what's right, there's usually going to be some voices that, that might disagree, even if they come from, right, it may be other religious people who are doing that. It seems to be what's happening here. Um, so just something to be aware of. All right, anything else about this, uh, what he says to Smyrna here? Get to our next church. All right, let's keep trucking. <laughs> so next we have uh, the church in Pergamum. This is 12 through uh, 17. To the angel of the church in Pergamum, right? These are the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you're living, where Satan's throne is. Yet you are holding fast to my name, and you did not deny your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you, where Satan lives. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the people of Israel so that they would eat food sacrificed to idols and practice fornication. So you also have some who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Repent then. If not, I will come to you soon and make war against them with the sword of my mouth. Let anyone who has an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. To everyone who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will give a white stone, and on that white stone is written a new name, that no one knows except the one who receives it. Uh, so Pergamum, uh, you can see here, is built on a hill. Uh, I think there was a lot of mining or quarrying that, that happened there, which ties into why he mentions the white stone. Um, 
and there's you can see there there's a large temple to the emperor at the Trajan, again part of this emperor worship, uh, and it was a, a former Roman capital. So again, a lot of this uh, Rome being very much emphasized. Uh, it was throughout the whole empire, but especially in cities like this that were major centers, that would be a big expectation that you would be doing the right kind of emperor worship. <clears throat> Another really interesting thing in Pergamum is this altar to Zeus, right? And you see, you see that he talks about uh, Satan's throne. Now, you could probably look at this temple and see that that does actually kind of look like a throne, right? So when, when Jesus says that, I'm guessing those Christians in Pergamum knew exactly what he was talking about there, right? Not, not that literally where <coughs> Satan lives and this is the only place that he has, but you could call this, this pagan temple um, a throne of Satan because you know it's it's trying to lead people in a different path, uh, and you have this very obvious thing. Uh, but I'm guessing that's not what the non-Christians called it, right? Um, so again, we're seeing that having all this pressure to to worship the Roman Empire, worship their gods, um, has led to some difficulty. There's a place. This is a place where they've actually had someone be killed. Uh, he's named Antipas. Uh, he was a faithful witness. And as I mentioned before, the word uh, for witness in Greek is martyr. And so where we get the idea of a martyr being someone who dies for their beliefs comes really from, from Christian uh, witnesses, people who are willing to stand up for their faith. And so I think the temptation here that Jesus is trying to warn them against is, uh, you know what, I think I better just try and blend in because uh, it's getting pretty serious, right? If they, a leader in their church has died, that's, that's pretty scary. And so you can understand why some people might be willing to, well, let's just, I'll just pretend maybe to worship uh, the emperor. I'll just, you know, it's just a little sacrifice or something. I don't really mean it. You know, I still believe in Jesus. And so uh, that, I would guess that's probably some of what they're dealing with. We know from uh, other things, early church uh, leaders have written, that was a common problem. And so that's where you get to this. He talks about Balaam, right? And this is a story from the book of Numbers. He was a, a false prophet who tried to uh, curse Israel, but he wasn't able to. God wouldn't let him. And he connects that here with the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So it seems like it's, it's all sort of the same thing. It's just different names for the same thing. Uh, he talks about fornication, which could be literal, but I think is actually more, more likely that it's about cheating on God or cheating on Jesus uh, by doing things with other gods as well to the roman gods and that connects with the idea the problem of eating food sacrificed to idols uh, and this is a problem that the early church uh spent had to work out a lot and even seemed it even seems sometimes like different leaders came to different conclusions right you have acts 15 they write a letter saying not to do it paul in first corinthians is a little more well it kind of depends on the situation uh but why would eating food that's been sacrificed to Zeus or to the emperor, why would that be a problem? It's just food. That's kind of, Paul says there might be some where you can take it that way of if you understand that it's just, just food and it doesn't actually, these pagan gods aren't real. But why could this be uh, an issue? What is it? What well, could I, it represent? I think traditionally the view is similar to what uh, we see as the Lord's Supper, right? We don't take the Lord's Supper just because it's food. When we've got all kinds of food, mm -hmm. it's the Lord's Supper because we're trying to honor Jesus. Mm 
-hmm. So if you're taking the food that's sacrificed to idols, the idea is you are honoring this idol. You are participating mm -hmm. in it. And which I think is why Paul calls out, if, if nobody tells you that, well, then it's just food to you. But if somebody yeah. specifically calls it out, hey, this was the food we sacrificed to Zeus, mm -hmm. then it's probably a good idea to turn it down because we don't want to show that, oh, yeah, we're involved with that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and there in, in Corinth, some of them were actually going to like pagan feast to eat it. So it was more intentional. And so that's that's probably what they're dealing with here, that people were doing this so that they would be seen as like we're being loyal to the to the empire. Um, and and he's calling them out for that's actually disloyalty to Christ. That's that's cheating on him. Right. That's the sexual immorality. I think, again, that's a metaphor there. And so we have to think, um, what what would that what would that look like today? Right. How can we do things that um, it's just trying to fit in a little bit, but it actually is going against Christ. I think that's it's not an easy thing to figure out, but we always have to pay attention to where am I, you know, just going along. You know, it may just seem like, well, it's just a normal thing. Everybody's doing it. Um, but we always have to question, okay, what is the saying? If, if Jesus is truly my Lord, um, how much should I participate, participate in this? Um, so that's an ongoing question as we get, as we go through the book more of, um, how can we, you know, you can't just leave, right? They, they couldn't just leave the Roman Empire because it's everywhere. So how can we live in this world in a way that's that's still faithful? And, but it is, there is a promise of protection there, right? When he talked about this, this white stone you're given, it's kind of like, um, it's going to, you're going to know who you really are, right? That's when he says there's a name on it that no one knows except you. I think it's the idea of, you know who you are and don't let anyone else tell you otherwise and when you know who you are and when you're with uh christ then that keeps you safe so there's the notes i should have had up um oh all right that's that's pergamum we got one more church any other thoughts on on this one before we get to thyatira all right so our last one starting in verse 18 to the angel of the church in thyatira write these are the words of the son of god who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze I know your works, your love, faith, service, and patient endurance. I know that your last works are greater than your first, but I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet and is teaching and beguiling my servants to practice fornication and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her fornication. Beware, I am throwing her on a bed, and those who commit adultery with her, I am throwing into great distress unless they repent of their doings. And I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am the one who searches minds and hearts. And I will give to each of you as your works deserve. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who don't hold to this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay in you any other burden. Only hold fast to what you have, what you have until I come. To everyone who conquers and continues to do my works to the end, I will give authority over the nations to rule or shepherd them, with an iron rod, as when clay pots are shattered, even as I also received authority from my father. The one who conquers will also give the morning star that anyone who has an ear listen to the spirit is saying to the churches. All right, so Thyatira, uh, it's again emphasizing this patient endurance. He's saying a lot of you are doing the right things. You have uh, faith, you're serving, uh, you're showing love, and you're even doing better now than you were in the beginning, kind of the opposite of Ephesus. Uh, but you need to watch out against this same sort of problem of accommodating uh, to the empire. And so this is where we get this uh, woman who somehow seems to be involved in this. 
he calls her Jezebel, which is not her real name. It's, it's picking up uh, image from that queen in First and Second Kings who encouraged idolatry. Um, again, this is something we'll see John uh, do a lot through Revelation. He's picking up Old Testament images and reapplying them symbolically. Uh, I would just say, uh, don't make a habit of calling women you disagree with Jezebel. <laughs> that uh, can be problematic. Uh, but again, look at he's trying to make a connection between the idolatry that she, the original Jezebel encouraged and the way that this leader is doing that as well. Uh, again, he talks about her sexual immorality, but as you kind of work through that metaphor, I think again, it's, it's this idea of following other gods. And so uh, the children, right, are actually just the followers of her. She, he, Jesus is not saying he's going to kill this lady's kids, I would think. Um, and so again, that's a very common uh, metaphor in the prophets the of unfaithfulness uh, to God in worshiping idols is like adultery. It's like cheating on, on your spouse. And obviously that's a big deal. And so if she's encouraging that somehow, uh, it's something that needs to be spoken against. Again, we're not getting a lot of the specifics of, of what she's saying when he says, you know, the deep things of Satan. Um, I'm guessing she's not teaching that. She's probably talking about the deep things of God. Uh, this was a problem in the early church. Some of the earliest heresies were uh, people were saying, you know, we're going to give you this secret wisdom, and that's going to make you a, a kind of special believer because you know these things that not everybody knows. And so he's, it's kind of a, he's making a parody here of what they would call the deep things of God. Well, it's actually the deep things of Satan. Um, and so that's, we're, we're starting to see rumblings of things that become a problem over the next several centuries. Um, uh, is a way that people could just kind of go along with what everyone else uh, was doing in the Roman Empire, because as long as I believe these special things about God, um, that's all that matters. And it doesn't really matter how I live my life or what I do with my body. Um, but the, the re true Christian message says that all of that does matter. And it's not just about what you believe. It's about what, how those beliefs impact the way that you treat others. Um, and, and so this is probably something related to that. And then we get this promise at the end in verse 26 and 27, where Jesus is saying, I'm going to give you the same authority that, that I have. Right? This is kind of the idea of what it means for Jesus to be truly human, to be the son of man. It's that he is able to claim the identity and the authority that God meant for humanity to have. Uh, as, uh, and so, but then since Jesus has done it, we're going to be able to do that too. He's picking up from Psalm 2. Uh, which is kind of where that, that quote seems to be coming from. <clears throat> and so we get to rule with Jesus, but it's important that we do it as Jesus does. And there's an interesting question with the translation there uh, in verse 27, where he says we can either rule them with an iron rod or shepherd them with an iron rod. The word can mean either one. And to me, they have very different connotations, right? To rule over someone versus to shepherd someone uh, kind of implies different things. And yeah, the fact that he talks about shattering clay pots could be an, a, a clue, but at the same time, uh, Jesus identifies himself, what, as the good shepherd, not the good ruler. In fact, he talks against those who rule over others. Um, and he's, as he says, right, we talked about this morning, I'm among you as one who serves. And so again, if we're gonna lead like Jesus, if we're gonna have authority like Jesus has authority, we got to really think about, well, how does Jesus have authority? And as we, you know, as we see here, I'll, I'll stop the sharing as we wrap up and uh, finish. Um, 
yes, we do believe Jesus has authority. He is Lord. He's powerful, as we've seen uh, through all these messages so far and in the beginning. And yet we always want to pay attention to how that authority is being used and what the ultimate goal is. Is it just to crush our enemies or is it to, is it to get them to change their heart and mind so they can understand um, what God is, is trying to do? Uh, so uh, any final thoughts as, as we wrap up here? Like I said, next week, we'll, we'll think more uh, as we finish these messages. We'll get to talk a little bit. Of what would Jesus say to us? Uh, but anything else that you noticed as, uh, as we're closing this morning? Chris, I've got a question for you about yeah. uh, in all of these letters, he makes a promise to those who conquer. Mm -hmm. And normally when we define that word, we think of like conquering another country. But it right. almost seems like he's talking about possibly those who disciple or those who, um, I guess, spread the word. I, I'm not really sure if that's conquer is the best word. Yeah, that, I think that's as exactly we would define it. Yeah, I think that's kind of what we're, I was getting at. And that's a, an important question, right? Yeah, because like you said, when we say conquer, that means brute force, that means dominating. And um, that doesn't seem like the way that Jesus lived his life uh, when he ministered. Um, other translations sometimes will just say like be victorious. Um, it's it's the, the word can kind of be translated either way. So uh, being victorious might might be a little better because it seems less domineering. But yeah, I think that's, it's more like at this point, I want that to be the open question as we go through the whole book of what does it mean for us to conquer? Are we going to conquer like the Roman Empire does? Because it's very clear how they do it. Or are we going to conquer in a different way, right? How does Jesus save? Uh, he's identified, we're going to see in a couple of weeks consistently as a slaughtered lamb. Right? That's not a way that we would think of, of conquering, right? Of, of self-sacrifice somehow winning a victory. But that's the kind of, um, it's almost subversive, right? That he's trying to say, we are conquerors. We're more than conquerors. Uh, you know, Paul used that language as well. And yet, how do we do it? It's by emulating Jesus, it's by serving. It's by offering ourselves. It's, it's, it is going out and spreading the word. And sometimes that's going to um, cause difficulty. Um, and we may even lose our life for it. But we can even say that that is, is conquering in a sense. So... Yeah. Just, just another thought. What was that? Uh, just another thought. Mm -hmm. He always says, and I have this against you. Mm -hmm. If you conquer what he has against you. Yeah, so it may, okay, that's a good point. Maybe it's just overcoming whatever overcoming it is. Overcoming what he has on, against Because right? we all got stuff to work on um, individually and as a church. <laughs> and so it's like, can you can you get over this? Right, through, through what I say, through the power that I'm giving you. Um, right, the spirit is very present through all of this. Um, and so, it, yeah, it's kind of encouragement. Don't give up. Don't just say, well, you know what? Uh, I, I got baptized or I, I said the right words and I at least in my head believe the right thing. So I'm good enough. I'll just wait around until he comes back. No, we, we still want to be involved and, and be active. He said having this patient endurance, it, it doesn't mean sitting back. It means going forward and doing the things that we're called to do. So yeah, that, that can be conquering as well. It's, getting over our fears, maybe, of what might happen if I do what I need to do. Um, yeah, it's, it's redefining what it means to conquer. I think that's a big, overall, big picture idea in Revelation. So, all right, well, thanks for those comments. Uh, we'll see you next week as we wrap up the uh, messages to the other churches. And uh, go Chiefs. <laughs>